go and compete. Hello and welcome to this week back in the day, a brand new series from the Green Machine Podcast. And what a better way to kick it off than to talk about how Jack Charlton got the Ireland gig on the 7th of February 1986. But also, we're here to talk about how he almost didn't. And we're also here to talk about just how close we were from not having a Jackie's army and not having put him under pressure. Turn it off. As always, I'm David, your host, and this week I'm joined by our own honorary Irishman, Mr. Martin Prendergast. How are you doing, Martin? Yeah, good, thanks, Dave. Uh, looking forward to covering this one. I think it's an exciting time, and, you know, this was brilliant. This was, you know, how it turned out, and it's a really interesting story to see about how he was actually appointed. This is a fascinating topic. I, I don't think people understand, and, and something that we really want to do here on This Week Back in the Day, where we get stories from yesteryear, and we basically shine a light on them, really, isn't it? We just want to put new light to a newer audience and just kind of show you how mad things were. I mean, they're still mad now, <laughs> but how really crazy things were back in the 80s with the FAI and just some of the practices were really mad. I mean, and the, the way this one went down, it's incredible. I cannot wait to get uh, stuck into this. So in order to talk about how one rain starts, we need to have a little chat about how another one ends. And that was Owen Hand's reign. Owen Hand had decided to retire after a nil-nil draw with Norway back in May. And that sort of left the FAI with plenty of time for a rethink. Irish football had been in the dundrums for pretty much ever. And not helped by the fact that just up the road, an hour up the road in Northern Ireland, a little fella called Billy Bingham was doing ever so well with a much smaller pool and probably not as good a pool of players that the Republic had. So they thought we need a bit of a rethink. Owen's last game in charge was a humiliating 4-1 defeat at home at the hands of the Danish, which seems to be a recurring theme. And even after that game, the RT2 uh, continuity announcer decided to add to levity by announcing, and after the break, we will have more comedy with cheers. Amazing. <laughs> bit sad, really, wasn't it? Just to talk a little bit about Owen Hand, a great servant to Irish football, Martin. Great players. Very unlucky, wasn't he, with the uh, World Cup 82 qualifiers? And, you know, it just never got going for him after that, did it? No, that was that really left a, a big kind of, kind of a big damage to him, really. I think professionally, I think he started to feel the pressure of the job a lot more after being robbed in 82's qualifying campaign. And I think also... He just felt the pressure of the crowd and he felt the pressure of the press and it was all getting on top of him. And he, I mean, we had an incredible pool of players and talented players available then. We have to remember that and we still couldn't get across the line to qualify for a tournament. He he will be kind of considered as quite an unlucky manager, um, but sadly, you know, it just was coming to an end and, and this was the the whole thing again. Like you said, it was a humiliating defeat again against the Danish in Dublin and um, it came to an end. You know, they were in a high going off to the World Cup in 1986. It was a fabulous um, Denmark team as well, wasn't it? It really was as well, yeah. It definitely was. Well worth looking up and see how, how some of these really well-known players now who were playing for them. And they were off to World Cup and we were really in the, stuck in the doldrums still. Yeah, world-class team, but just not going anywhere. I think it was like 14,000 fans or something in Lansdowne Road. If you ever see the footage of it, like literally just nobody at it. You can even see Owen Hand and he's got his hands on his hips and he's just sort of looking around thinking, well, this is my last game. <laughs> I haven't left this in better shape than I found it. Um, did you did you know, actually, in Denimel Park, that I think they had a, a draw with Mexico and 6,000 fans showed up. 
I think that was in 1984, and it was the lowest attendance ever for an Ireland match. It was always difficult for Ireland at that stage as well. We have to remember, like we're talking 20, 30 years ago, and that, you know, a lot, we didn't have floodlights at a lot of our stadiums then. So a lot of the games even used to be in the afternoon, and it was probably difficult for the lads to kind of motivate themselves a little bit. But um, we had an incredible pool of talent, as you've said. And yeah, it just, just people were disillusioned with with the football on the pitch. A lot of the players weren't making themselves available. Incredibly talented, as we said, mm-hmm. and play, applying their trade with some of the top teams in England at the time, but weren't really that willing to come over. And if you look back mm-hmm. at the history of the FAI, um, even back a couple of decades before as well, you know, even in times of John Giles and things, a lot of players, you know, we think of them as legends today and stuff, but they weren't actually turning out for Ireland very regularly. And that was always a challenge then for the manager coming in to try and get people to want to play and represent their country uh, we will cover own hands reign in future episodes don't worry about it but we're <laughs> going to focus on the man himself but yeah there's so much to talk about oh we've got years of content really <laughs> so the fai as we said looked across the border at how billy bingham was doing he was actually based in stockport at the time and you know he had some great success with the northern irish team he qualified for the 82 uh world cup beat spain one nil you never guess who scored the goal martin Armstrong. Yeah, because he never mentions it, does he? Never brings it up. <laughs> and uh, obviously qualified, was actually going to our World Cup in uh, Mexico 86 as well, which is mad, as we said, considering the size of the talent pool and the size of the country compared to the Republic. But anyway, so a rethink was needed. And that brought up a list. So before this, Irish managers were always, and it seems a bit mad now, but always were based in Ireland. Johnny Giles was manager, as Martin alluded to earlier. However, he had moved back. I think he was Shamrock Rovers and Ireland manager at the same time. And basically, yeah, we never had a foreign, you know, so-called foreign manager, which is obviously has changed over the last few years. So this is all a bit new for the FAI. So we're going to have a look at the initial list uh, by the FAI. Well, what was reported at the time anyway, in 1985 and 86. So Billy McNeil, who was the Man City manager at the time, a Lisbon line, a Celtic legend. He was top of the list. Liam Toohey, a former Ireland manager and was actually the current youth manager at the time. No under 21s back then, Martin. It was just the youth manager. Jack Charlton, he'd actually quit Newcastle the year before he'd walked out, in fact, in 1985. He wasn't too happy, didn't want to spend the money and uh, wasn't really. He's the hometown lad, but uh, the fans didn't quite appreciate him. So he skedaddled. Uh, Jim McLaughlin was the Derry City manager. He was on the short list there. Noel Cantwell, Man United and Irish legend. That would have been interesting, Martin. Noel Cantwell. Yeah, he would have been interesting also at West Ham, wasn't he? Yeah, fantastic mm-hmm. player and, and yeah, interesting one, definitely. FA Cup winning uh, captain yeah. of Man United. Uh, Paddy Mulligan. Uh, former Shelburne manager, he'd actually applied for the post before, but he lost out to own hand by a single vote. And apparently one FAI committee member said that he had voted against Mulligan because he thought Mulligan had thrown a bun at him on a passed away trip. <laughs> such is such is the life of the FAI. I mean, you know, it's just it's just amazing. I'd recommend anyone to go back and look at the history of the FAI. And some of the st- goings on is is Father Ted stuff, to be honest. May I just say, for any of the younger listeners, please bear with us because we're going to get into all this. That's the sort of pettiness 
that the FAI was built on. And that is the sort of stuff that we're going to uncover and we're going to bring to you. Lost out in the job because I thought you threw a bun at me, a sticky bun at my head. Amazing. Probably, I bet you that away trip is in by gosh, probably trying to get him on. No, we won't. There's <laughs> <laughs> uh, There's a few stories from those past away trips. Probably best not say them on uh, here. We don't want any legal action. Uh, but yeah, we'll definitely get to those. Um, another name, actually, which I have recently shared on Lance and Road Martin. Doing, I love my research. I love the rabbit holes. You are going straight down, finding out these different things. And one I was a bit shocked with a couple of years ago, brought it to the attention of everybody, was that Brian Clough was approached and was interested in December 1985 with the Ireland job. He Now, Nottingham Forest had kind of ruled that out. He said, no, there's no way. Because, you know, it's Peter Taylor had left at that stage, his right-hand man. They had a massive fallout for the second time. So it was just him running that club. And they thought it was too much for him running Ireland or ERA, as they like to say back in the 80s and 70s, and Nottingham Forest at the same time. So they said no to that. But Clough is quoted as saying that he was very interested in it and that Bobby Robson would crawl on his knees to bring the sort of talent that the Irish possessed. You know, we, we, we touched on it there. Liam Brady, Mark Lawrence and Ronnie Whelan, Frank Stapleton, all these guys in their peak. Paul McGrath, tip-top players, world-class. David O'Leary. Yeah, you know, not, not to underestimate how talented this team was. Out of that group, the one man, funnily enough, that the FAI, and I was a bit shocked at this, Martin, actually, that they offered him the job pretty much unofficially. I believe so, from what I've read in the Irish Times. Is Billy McNeil, the first guy that we mentioned, the Lisbon line, the Man City manager. He was pretty much offered that job on the 7th of January, 1986. I didn't actually know about that. No, neither did I, David. And, and like you said there, the, the, the thing we have to consider with this, of why it was attracted to Brian Clough and some of these managers was the international role was still perceived as a part-time job. You yes. could actually combine it with your club role. And I think that was that, that just shows you where we were in football that, in those days that, you know, you think back to Brian Clough and what he was doing at Nottingham Forest and what he had achieved already, and yet he was considering in his career, after winning European Cups, that he would like to try international football without having to give up Nottingham Forest. So that was why it was attractive. Man City manager Billy McNeil was, as we've said, basically offered the job, um, but it was going to be a dual role. And I think the FAI even went over to City to try and negotiate yep. basically the money that they were going to, uh, you know, compensate Man City for the period, I think it was 30, 30 or 40 days, where he would be not focusing on Man City business, but would be serving serving Ireland. And, and, you know, people probably say, oh, FAI, but that was just the way football was. This is still old football. International management was a part-time role, absolutely. And they weren't millionaires at the time either. So a week later, that was ruled out by the club and chairman, Peter Swales, good old Peter Swales, Man City. Uh, they just said no. They didn't think that uh, Benny McNeil could do both roles. Funnily enough, actually, uh, McNeil would quit City in September of 1986 and he'd take over Aston Villa, but would finish last in Division One in 1987. So that leaves us with just three serious contenders from the original list. Liam Toohey, who, yes, Irish legend, former Ireland manager, um, he was actually okay, Martin, with the FAI going with an English-based manager. But he did say to them that, you know what? If you can't get the type of English-based manager, I understand why you're doing it. I'm here for you. 
just in case you can't get the right guy. What a company man he was. And I don't, I actually don't say that with, I, I genuinely don't say that with any sarcasm. Like, just what a guy, Liam Tui. Yeah, Liam Tui was a bit of a legend, wasn't he? I mean, he had a good record with the youth, as you said, and responsible for bringing a lot of them lads through. Um, and he was really a company man. Yeah. Incredibly loyal to the FAI. He managed Ireland in the past when he was actually doing two other jobs at the same time. So that's how crazy this is. He was actually giving so much of his time and being an Irish manager and doing a, I think he was a sales rep for ice cream. And <laughs> incredible, you know, and that yeah. was our island manager then. So, yeah. you know, um, and yet, sadly, you know, often we were found to be the whipping boys. Whipped cream. <laughs> yes, that's it, yeah. Sorry, that's a, that's a terrible joke. Yeah, we can come. Um, <laughs> yeah. And of course, that left Jack and Johnny Giles. Now, Johnny Giles, they wanted him back in. Now, Giles, it's kind of funny, though. We actually talked about this earlier on. Now, Giles is a very polar. Now, nowadays, he's not. He's a legend and rightfully so. But back in the day, people might not realize this. But Johnny Giles was a very polarizing figure in Irish football and Ireland in general. Uh, he was a great Leeds player, but he did anger uh, fans of other clubs because not only was he a technically brilliant player, wonderful passing, world-class, genuine world-class player, uh, he was a dirty bastard, <laughs> quite frankly. And, and and when we say dirty, Martin, we're not talking handbags. We're talking like knocking out Kevin Keegan in the charity shield. Well, hit, hitting him at least. Um, proper digs. But um, he also had come over. He was West Brom manager. And he'd left because he got, he was actually very good as West Brom manager too, but he kind of got fed up of the politics of English football. Uh, came back home to Dublin with Eamon Dunphy to buy a share in Shamrock Rovers with his brother in law, Louis Kilcoyne. And the whole idea was to bring Shamrock Rovers and make them a European powerhouse. And that just upset pretty much everybody that wasn't affiliated with Shamrock Rovers uh, at the time. And then eventually upset Shamrock Rovers fans. And then basically he was Ireland manager and people weren't very endeavoured with his style of football. Where do you mind for Ireland? Like they, they found it very boring and very tippy-tappy and just not adventurous, really. Yeah, which is a total odds to some of the highlights you see of John Giles. You know, he's one of the first players I've seen ever in the highlights now to do a Rabona and, and that. And oh. incredibly talented player. You have to remember he was a former kind of Busby babe in some respects. He was released by Matt Busby at Man United, which Busby said himself was... A massive mistake because he went over to Leeds and he was part of that kind of renaissance of, of Leeds Football Club where under, under Revy, he, you know, Revy had them playing a certain style of football. They were tough men. You know, he was working as well then with like Billy Bremner, Jack Charlton, people who didn't mess around. They looked after themselves on the pitch. They were really, you know, that's why they're called Dirty Leeds. They were, um, and we're not going to enamour ourselves to many Leeds fans on this, but incredible sides, you know, and they come close to winning European Cups and everything. And mm. and they won the league title, and that's obviously well documented in that film with yeah. uh, Brian and Clough and stuff. But um, he, was, he was very dirty, Giles. And you have to remember as well, looking back at the history, we do consider him a legend now, and rightly so. But, you know, he didn't play for Ireland for a number of years as well, after have falling out with managers and the kind of FAI council who picked the squad. He, he probably was a pro ahead of his time in a sense and mm. was very much determined to get fair pay for players. Same as Dumphy. And that's why they became cohorts as we obviously saw later on in their punditry. And of course, Johnny Giles was credited. He was the manager before Owen Hand, not beforehand. 
And he was one that was really credited with bringing the standard of the Irish team up, that bit of professionalism in there, because obviously, you know, he played with the best players, as Martin had said earlier on. And, you know, he was actually very well regarded at West Brom. So now we get to the selection process where 18 members plus the president would gather together in a smoky room in 80 Marion Square on this 7th of February, 1986. 80 Marion Square, of course, being the old Georgian headquarters of the FAI. And they would have a list of Charlton, Giles and Tui. However, there was a little trick up the sleeve of a certain member of the FAI believed to be Mr. Des Casey, the late, great Des Casey, who actually was one of the good guys, to be fair, speaking of a man ahead of his time. It was believed that he had Bob Paisley, the legendary Liverpool manager, uh, up his sleeve and basically willing to take the job. He'd been approached beforehand around the time when Brian Clough was approached and he'd sort of turned it down. Yes, we could have had Bob Paisley. Now, Martin, since you're a Man United fan, I will get you to explain to our listeners how great Bob Paisley was as Liverpool manager. We are talking one of the greatest managers of all time. Yeah, certainly at that period of, in football, he was well regarded and, and Liverpool had a, an amazing team. Three as well. European Cups. Three European Cups. That was just for our younger listeners as well. We must remember that um, the European Cup at that stage, it was just, you know, it was the champions of the country would yeah. be participating in it. So it was and a lot harder to win. It was probably easier to win because you'd come a lot up harder to win. a lot of minnows and, you know, from small nations. It was the luck of the draw as well, who you'd get. I think actually Liverpool, if you look back at their history of European Cups, I think they won one tie on the flip of a coin after a draw. Um, but that I, I digress. <laughs> and the bitterness about Liverpool's coming out in me. But no, look, he had a fantastic reputation. Was 65. You know, we've, mm. we have looked and we've, in our history, again, we've looked at people and we've ruled out them for being a bit of an older generation, even though they've got great experience. And we have must stress as well with the Irish job, it technically was and basically was operated as a part-time job. So it mm-hmm. could have been very attractive to a, a gentleman of that age uh, with that experience. And as well, we have to remember what an attractive job it was to look at because of the player pool we had. We had the likes of Liam Brady. We had like Paul McGrath coming through. Jack uh, Stapleton was there as well. We had a really good young side um, coming through then. Not to get sidetracked for too long, actually, on that, but I have to give credit to the FEI here. I mean, two of the managers they went after, Brian Clough and Bob Paisley, two of the best in the business at that time. You have to give credit there. I mean, they are players. Sorry, they are managers fitting for players of that quality, really, aren't they? World-class managers and world-class players. Without a doubt. And that's why it was very attractive to them, though, as well, because they could recognise the players and mm. knew them from the league because Irish players were playing week in, week out in the Division One at oh, the yeah. time and were well, playing in Europe and a very, very good level and were in winning championship winning teams. So it was very, very attractive to look at them players and think, hang on a second, there's something wrong here somewhere that that team isn't being able to qualify for tournaments because that was the state we were in at the time you also have to remember the FAI were absolutely skint we were on our ass at the time which we've had since and before and that's the situation as well it wasn't going to be paying a lot of money but I think it was a prestigious job because again looking at the players and thinking actually for my own ego I'm going to be the one who creates history with this country and I'll qualify them for a World Cup or a European Championship. 
So Bob Paisley actually made the three-man shortlist, a four-man shortlist. And that wasn't supposed to be the case. And that actually did cause massive uproar amongst the FAI board at the time, the 19-man FAI board. So people were very happy about this. And this is where a bit of pettiness comes into it. Kind of works in our favour a little bit when we see where the story goes. However, we're going to talk now, Martin, how Jack got the job, how the FAI functioned to put the term loosely, uh, at that time in 1986. Now, today, if you want to hire a manager, I imagine the CEO would say, this is who I want, and basically he'd recommend it to the board, and the board had to ratify it, or something to that degree. They agree. Or back in the John Delaney days, he just basically said, yeah, I want this guy, and all went, yeah, that's a great idea, John. <laughs> allegedly, allegedly. Um, but in 1986... They all had to vote on it. And who basically whoever got the job had to get a minimum of 10 votes. Right. So he had to get 10 votes. So stick with me here, folks. This took me a while to, to get my head around it, but I, I, I'm going to try and explain it in the, in the clearest, most concise possible way. Are you ready, Martin? Yep. Right. Here we go. So as I said, 10 votes or more were required for a win. And there's 19 members on the panel, including the president, Des Casey. However, his vote could only come into play if two candidates were tied and he would get the deciding vote. That was the power of the president. No CEO back in those days. So the results of the first round are Tui with three votes, Giles with three votes, Charlton with three votes and Bob Paisley with nine votes. Just let that sink in, Martin. Obviously, it's deadlocked, but Bob Paisley was one vote, one vote away from being the Republic of Ireland manager. One vote. And thus changing history forever for the association. Yeah. Uh, you know, because obviously, you know, we know that, spoiler alert, Jack gets the job. But very interesting. I mean, would this, voting, would, this, <laughs> would this voting process, you know, it just shows you the kind of circus-like operation within the FAI. At that time, there was a lot of factions between the board of the FAI. And that's why the voting is so key here, because Paisley, a lot of people were disgruntled that he came in the back door. Chewy was a company man and was well-respected. Giles had been kind of promised that he would get the support from a number of the board. And really, he only put himself forward and was persuaded to come back in because, basically, for a little bit for his own ego, he didn't want to put himself up originally. And so too, so too did Paisley if they weren't going to get the job. They didn't really want to advertise that they were the ones who were actually going to get be, be considered for the job if they weren't actually going to get it. So a little bit of ego in there, even back then in 1986. So yeah. very, very interesting to focus on that as well. But Paisley, I mean, it could have changed history completely. You know, one vote away, but then we know what happened. Yeah, I mean, Giles actually, did you know, looking at my history notes, Giles was actually favoured to get the job in January. He, he apparently was very close to getting it. Or well, he was believed. He believed he was very close to getting yeah. it. So after the second vote, Liam Tui would find himself eliminated, and with the third vote, Johnny Giles would find himself eliminated too. On the third count, uh, Paisley got nine, still just one away. Charlton with five, and Giles with four. Des Casey still not able to use his vote, as we said earlier. Two candidates have to be tied, and it just wasn't happening. But wasn't all bad for Des Casey because that would just leave Charlton 
and Paisley and basically Paisley be leading the whole way. So surely it's just academic at this stage. Well, actually, it wasn't. Charlton would end up winning the vote 10 to 8. What happened? Well, basically, um, somebody on the board who wasn't very happy uh, with Bob Paisley's late inclusion decided to stick the knife in Des Casey and just say, no. Nah. <laughs> and that was it. Charlton got the job. How crazy is that, Martin? It is crazy. I mean, the voting procedure alone is quite complicated, as we know. And it, it was kind of strange. Obviously, someone had turned away completely. I mean, Casey, before the final vote, he must have been thinking, look, my man's home and hosed here. Because even if everyone's votes who's gone to Charlton, Giles and Chewy, if it was nine each, he would have had a decided vote. The fact someone jumped ship and went for Charlton then just shows like the absolute kind of shit show that was going on in the background with the FAO yeah. at the time. And the, as we said, there was factions there and people, I know it's been really well covered this in, in a sense, um, in, in Paul Rowan's, the team that Jack built, but it's just a shit show and it's just mad to actually think about it. Yeah. That's a brilliant book, by the way, team that Jack built. Fantastic. Paul Rowan. Great, great book. So Charlton has a job. Great. Let's tell them. No way we can't. Why? Because the FAI actually didn't have a phone number to ring him and tell him he got the job. You couldn't make this up. <laughs> uh, the FAI did hold a press conference just to announce that Jack had got the job, although they weren't too sure whether he would accept it or not, because, as we said, they didn't have a phone number to ring him. How Jack found out, Martin, was that apparently he was at a hunting lunch in Cloverdale in Yorkshire and his mate teammate i believe in england jimmy arfield yeah. who was actually a journalist at that stage had tracked him down and told him he got the job and he also gave the fei jack's number obviously now we have the internet we have social media things get leaked and all that kind of stuff you know it, it, it's quite porous these days but back in 1986 the 7th of february 1986 martin the irish public found out about the new Ireland manager on well basically the twitter of Ireland back in the 80s, and that was a late, late show. And um, have a listen to this. This is a clip of Cabern announcing he's been he's handed a piece of paper and he announces to the Irish public. And let's be honest, most of them would have been watching at that time. Did you notice we haven't had a soccer manager for the Republic of Irish team in three months? Haven't lost a match in that time either. Very extraordinary. Well, I've just been told that Jack Charlton has been appointed manager of the Republic football team. Jackie Charlton, you're interested in that there? You were expecting that, were you? There you are, you see. That's amazing, isn't it? When you, you, you think of uh, two years later, like the Euro 88. Exactly, yeah. Gay was like leading the, the sing-song with the Irish team. <laughs> um, yeah, with the Ole Ole's and everything like that. And the Ireland, Ireland. I mean, look, that, that's just what the what it was about then. The Irish football wasn't massively popular then. You know, it was the arrival of Jack Charlton that was going to be our springboard to actually qualify for a tournament. And you look at how that was received in the audience there. You know, maybe there weren't any freebies being given away that night. But fair play. I'd love to meet the lone clapper, the lone, the lone whooper. How that was received by the public um, was pretty much how it was received by the press. Although Jack did have one supporter in the media, funnily enough. Um, I found this quote from this particular person, Martin. I'm going to read it out to you here. Leadership has been restored to Irish football at international level. Decent skinmanship has finally been dispensed with. Do you know who wrote that? I'll tell you who wrote it, David. Eamon Dunphy. Yes, he did. <laughs> That's amazing, isn't it? It is, yeah. Interesting that Eamon Dunphy is the one to support him because with the close links with Giles as well. 
Um, and I think Giles yeah. was probably a little bit disappointed that he didn't get the job. Um, ultimately, I think he had actually prepared that he was how it was going to be announced. He was going to be interviewed that evening. I think from around the corner, he, he was holed up at a hotel. I think in Dublin, actually, at the night of it, of the of the the vote, basically. So he must have been quite confident. But yeah, very interesting. I think that Eamon Dunphy was a supporter of Jack, and I think again, this is probably a legacy kind of thing from from Dunphy when he was involved with Ireland and actually coming away from the role as a footballer. You know, he wrote mm-hmm. only a game as well, where he it's a fantastic book to read about how he's dealing with the kind of trials and tribulations of a player coming to the end of their career. He was forging his career and his name in the media at this stage as well. So it's interesting to see how he had adapted to his life there. But the fact that some of the things he was asking for change within the FAI as an organisation, he was actually confident that Jack Charlton was the one who's going to be bringing this to the table. Whatever the critics may say about his managerial qualifications, Jack Charlton is certainly well able to defend himself. Today he dismissed George Best to it, voice loud dissent at the appointment as someone with no credibility whatsoever. Other criticism he simply ignored, saying his priority now was to get on with the job. And that job begins in earnest tomorrow morning when he meets his new employers to discuss his terms of reference. He's clearly disillusioned with British club soccer, but why the move to manage the Irish team? Why the Irish team? The Irish team, it's the national coach's job. It was the one I've always... For the last three or four years, looked at strangely enough. Don't know why. Um, I think it's because we look at it from abroad, from from the English Indic side of the board, and we look at your results and we think, "Hey, friends, you've got some good players over there." And um, it's a it's a job of great possibility. Dublin Air, Dublin Airport. Uh... <laughs> Looking exactly the same on <laughs> the arrivals. It hasn't. Cha- it really hasn't changed. It's still fucking dingy. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, Jack's Jack's just confirming what we've all been saying. Like, it's a perfect job, isn't it? Quality players across the road. On to the next day, where Jack would face the press proper. The Republic's controversial new UK. soccer supremo was um, giving very little away at a sometime you know, storm in the to hotel this evening. But he will be signed a player in my life for an undisclosed fee. He remained tight-lipped on the question of who his assistant manager might be. I asked him what he planned to do about the abysmal standard of Irish international soccer. I've been brought up in the game all my life. I know it inside out. I've worked with some very, very knowledgeable and good people at that level. Seen quite a lot of it, and uh, generally, even though I can't alter the uh, individual ability of players, I can probably alter the structure in the way they think. You'll be giving some talk to the Parliament about dealing with players who are stars in their own right for their own clubs, but are simply the greatest appointment of national level. I'll only find out when I've seen them play. I mean, how they perform for someone else, how they perform for me, uh, is totally different. I might ask different things of them, I might accept things from them that, that you would think is wrong. Now, what you don't see is uh, Peter Byrne asking Des Casey about the Bob Paisley part of the process. So obviously, you know, Peter is getting his uh, inside information, I'd imagine, from uh, one of the fellow candidates and kind of knows what he knows what's going on back in the day. But he asks him about uh, Bob Paisley and Charlton, of course, wades in to help out, I think, Des must have been a little bit flustered about it and said to, you know, go Casey doesn't have to answer that question. Mr. President doesn't. And Dunphy, 
uh, Emma Dunphy chipped in and said, well, actually, that's in the public interest. So you do need to answer that question. And Charlton immediately recognised Dunphy. And he says, I know you. You're a troublemaker, you. And basically, Martin, he offered him outside for a straightener, as we call it in Dublin. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> you know, and of course, uh, Eamon Dunphy, you know, if you see the two of them together, he didn't fancy that because I think we know what happened there. So he's already made a hell of an entrance. I mean, he's come in. He's basically said that George Best had absolutely no credibility whatsoever. He's argued with the the, the, the premier um, football writer at the time in the country, Peter Byrne, and he's offered Eamon Dunphy out for a straightener at the side. Yeah, well, that's just typical Jack that we know and love now, isn't it? And and it was just going to be a lot of fun going ahead with it, um, with the appointment, because you just wasn't going to suffer fools. And, you know, the mm-hmm. first one he probably took on really in the press was Dunphy then, and he had it marked out, didn't he? And that was a kind of relationship that was, you know, evolve over time. Be very love-hate at times as well. Probably Jack hated him, I'd say, more so. But um, <laughs> it was just, yeah, it's a crazy time, and... It just shows you as well that, you know, there was still leaks in the association that, you know, you know, Peter Byrne knew to ask that question. And I think it probably was quite unfair at, at the unveiling of a, a manager's job uh, press conference where you're going to, you should be kind of all positive and talking about the future and what he's actually going to bring to Irish football. And yet you're talking about how close it was that he, you know, the sliding doors moment, basically, that really you shouldn't be here, Jack, was well, kind of what they're alluding to. So fascinating to see that and see it in the TV uh, footage there as well. Rumour had it that Liam Toohey was actually going to take over as the right-hand man of Jack. I mean, who better? He knew the landscape of Irish football. He knew everybody. He was well-connected, well-respected as well, and would have made any transition for Jack um, much smoother. However, that didn't happen. And that's actually going to be a future episode, Martin. Yeah, is that, that's why it's just fascinating to cover. And, and I think people should be rest, reassured that some of the uncertainty and the nonsense that goes on in the FAI has always been there in a sense. And hopefully this episode where it covers this crazy voting procedure um, and who's even press leaks, who's the kind of leading the kind of council and making these decisions has always been there in the FAI. So we should be reassured we do get through the tough days. And, you know, incredibly, Jack getting the job was a sliding doors moment because it could have been Paisley. But thankfully, we can look back, you know, 20, 30 years on and think of the amazing times we had under Jack and you know, yeah. qualifying for tournaments, which we'll come on to cover. Exactly. And, and you know, anybody listening to this probably screaming, go, why didn't you pick Bob? Well, to be fair, Bob was 65 at the time and he actually wasn't very well. And I think people believe at the time he was showing signs of early signs of Alzheimer's because he was actually a director at Liverpool at the time. And he was Kenny Daglish had taken over from Joe Fagan, who had resigned after the European Cup final at 85 in Heisel, the disaster. Basically, he was guiding him, but he was actually guiding him and criticizing him simultaneously, criticizing him in the press. And Kenny had written about this actually in his book. I'm sure you read it, Martin. Basically saying that they, they felt that he was quite unwell because he didn't quite understand why he was doing this. We're gonna leave, we're not gonna go any further. This is just about the appointment of Jack. We'll get to all the other stuff, I'm sure. I'm very excited about this series, Martin, going forward. I really am, and I, I can't wait to dig into some of the stories. So, Martin, thank you for coming on. Thank you at home for listening, and thank you for continuing to support the Green Machine podcast. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to our Facebook page, please subscribe to our YouTube channel, our Instagram, and Twitter. And if you want, 
pop over to thegreenmachinepodcast.com and have a look, see what we've got going on over there. Thank you very much. Good night. God bless. Put them under pressure.